Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Thank you so much. Um, so, so first of all, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, Justice Brandeis wrote in 1890 in his seminal work on the right to privacy that the common law has always recognized a man's house as his castle impregnable. And um, we are here to maybe test that proposition. Um, there are many unique considerations around privacy in the home. Um, the privacy of the home is expressly recognized by the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, which protects the right of the people to be secure in their persons, their houses, papers and effects. Uh, searches of the home without a warrant are presumptively unconstitutional unless an exception applies. The home is where we keep much of our most sensitive information and have some of our most private conversations. And it's also, of course, where our kids are. Um, but with that said, technology is increasingly intersecting with the home with both benefits and also significant privacy risks. Um, so I'm here to discuss uh, some of these issues with um, with Leah Plunkett and Bethany Singer-Bayevsky. Um, Leah is the Meyer Research Lecturer on Law at Harvard Law School and a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Her teaching and scholarship focus on digital privacy and the digital lives of kids, families, and communities. Uh, she speaks regularly to media outlets and audiences around the world on these and related digital topics, including appearances on the BBC, my favorite, of course, the Dr. Phil Show and the Armchair Expert podcast. Her book, Sharenthood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online, One Praise from Wired and the New Yorker. Um, Ms. Plunkett has practiced as a legal aid and consumer rights attorney, and she received her AB from a small college in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and received her uh, JD from that same university. Um, Bethany Singer-Bayevsky is uh, the Group Chief Privacy Officer for National Grid, where she oversees both data privacy and records management. Prior to National Grid, she was the Global Head of Data Privacy and a registered DPO at iRobot, uh, which I believe they make vacuums or something, Bethany. Um, uh, she's provided uh, data privacy consulting services for, for companies and nonprofits around the world. Uh, she is a fellow of information privacy with the International Association of Privacy Professionals, served two years on their publications advisory board and regularly addresses audiences across industries on critical issues. Uh, she received her BA in government uh, from Smith College and an LLM in public international law from Leiden University, where she attended as a Fulbright Scholar. So with that background, um, oh, and I should have mentioned I'm, I'm Kevin Angle. Um, I'm, counsel <laughs> I'm counsel in the privacy and cybersecurity practice here at Ropes and Gray um, in Boston. And I work on a variety of issues related to data, privacy, and cybersecurity. Um, I, I work on you know privacy issues involving GDPR, CCPA, and host of other privacy laws, and I also advise on incident response work. Um, just to set the stage, I, I want to talk briefly about some of the devices that are intersecting um, with our homes. And of course, there's some obvious ones like your um, your voice assistant, your Amazon Alexa, your your Echo. Um, there's security cameras, um, but Bethany, I think your career um, kind of sets the stage well for how how um, some of the companies you work for have devices or other technologies that do intersect with the home. So could you tell us a little bit about sort of your background and, and how that does intersect with the home? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you, Kevin, for having me, for having us and uh, for that introduction. Um, really excited to be here and to be speaking with everybody today. Um, so my, my background is a little bit... Um, 
all over the place in, in, in some ways. Um, so public international law with a focus on human rights. And I made a kind of a pivot into uh, data privacy and compliance when I started working at a mar marketing technology, MarTech startup in Vancouver, Canada. Um, and then after that, uh, worked for four years at iRobot. So we had uh, work in the software space as well as in the combined hardware and software space. And that hardware and software space combined was really where the privacy in the home piece came in. Um, my work at iRobot was really about how do you create a connected, secure, privacy-forward smart home uh, ecosystem that has you know these these cleaning devices kind of at the center of it. Um, and so it, it, in that sense, you had all of these different pieces, right? Because it wasn't just the devices themselves, which overall, honestly, are fairly innocuous. Um, you also had the fact that they would integrate with a whole lot of other devices or that you could opt in to features where it could detect where other smart devices were or measure the strength of your Wi-Fi signals in various areas of your home and paint kind of that full picture. And the idea was to make the consumer's lives easier. Uh, but at the same time, there, there are real privacy concerns. I mean, if you're setting it so that, okay, um, hey, Google or hey, Alexa or hey, Siri or hey, whomever, um, make sure that my Roomba cleans uh, when I leave the house in the morning. Well, if you have smart locks, it's knowing when your locks are opening and closing. It can tell, you know, when you're coming and going. Um, you have it set up based on a particular schedule. It's linked into your calendar. It may be linked up with your work calendar. So all of these little data points come together to form this picture. And then if you're taking your kids to school, for example, um, maybe you're leaving your house, you're coming home, you know, 8 a.m. and 3 p.m., right? And so that's also giving companies a picture of who you are demographically, right? So all of these innocuous little data points come together to form this kind of bigger picture. And so when, so, and, and that's really, been the, the the part in in my career journey that has been really eye-opening to me is that hey it's not just about the directly identifiable information it's about how you take all of these different little pieces and put it together it's like it's like a pointillist painting i mean we're we're all kind of georges Seurat in, in all of this we're designing you know this this pretty picture of people at the park and it's all a bunch of tiny little dots putting it all together and what about national grid? I, I you know, power, it doesn't seem as natural as sort of the consumer device like uh, the the robotic vacuum. Cleaner. Yeah, yeah. So that one, that one I'm fairly, I'm still fairly new to grid, only been there about eight, nine months. Um, but that's been the thing where I've, I've, I kind of thought, okay, well, I'm doing this, this kind of pivot in, in industries as I'm wont to do. And what kind of privacy challenges are you going to see from a from a smart home perspective or really any perspective from, from a, a utility company? I mean, it's, it's, right? It's gas and electric. How privacy invasive is that? Um, smart meters. That's that's a kind of a big new thing in the space. Um, how you're using your, your electricity, what you're powering. Um, you know, if you are somebody who is powering sensitive medical devices and you need to be at the top of the priority list in case of an outage, we know that. We're going to know that about you, right? So there are all of these these, these little pieces within the utility space as well that might not be top of mind when you're used to things like, you know, uh, smart home devices or in a MarTech space, landing pages and Google ads. 
but it in some ways it's actually more invasive because it's the nuts and bolts of how you're actually operating within your home as opposed to just drawing those inferences. Yeah, that's great. And Leah, I'm going to turn to you in a second, but before I do that, just one more question for you, Bethany. Um, sure. So we're going to talk a lot about risk here, right? Because it seems when people are putting devices in our homes, in a sense, it's kind of invasive. But um, there's a lot of benefits to the data, too. And when we were talking, you were mentioning, you know, the government is interested in some of that uh, smart meter data for good reasons. Could you maybe just sort of talk about that and other benefits that you are seeing? Yeah, no, absolutely. So so I, I think that that's actually a really critical thing to keep in mind is the the benefits versus just the risk, because there is that calculation that, that comes into place. I mean, even in, in GDPR, legitimate interest, you are weighing, it, you're, you're doing a balancing test for, you know, the rights and risks to rights and freedoms of data subjects versus the benefits of the data processing. So it's, it's sort of, a, you, you don't have that same kind of rule here, but within the utility space, you see uh, regulators asking for uh, ut- uh, usage data in order to help them with green energy initiatives. You know, they want to know, you know, where do your customers live? What it, what are their usage statistics so that we can send them brochures about solar or alternative fuel or uh, energy reduction during peak time so that we can support net zero and other another uh, energy reduction tools. And so the interesting thing is that you'll have the same regulator that's asking for kind of polar opposite things. You'll have you have you know a public service commission, for example, saying, "Hey, we we want all of this usage data so that we can promote these green energy initiatives." And at the same time, that same regulator will say, "And we want you to do an, an annual audit so that we can see how you're protecting personal information and know that you're not sharing it." And so, as the privacy team, the security team, the legal team, we look at this and we go, "What do you want from us?" <laughs> but ultimately, what it comes down to is they they want both of those things. And they don't have to come into conflict. You can share the data and make sure that you have contractual provisions in place or that you're sharing it via secure file transfer or that, you you know, it's you have guarantees that it's only being used for, you know, uh, energy saving measures A, B and C. Right. As opposed to as opposed to that that messaging of, well, we're sharing the data for marketing purposes. Well, it's not really marketing purposes. You know, that that, you can debate that, but it's really, okay, we want we want to promote green energy. We need data to do that. We need to also do that in a way that's security forward and privacy forward. Great. Thank you. So, so Leah, can you talk a little bit about your your background and how you intersect with privacy in the home? Absolutely. I Bethany will say I, I loved the painting analogy. I think that that is so spot on. I may use it in the future with uh, citational justice. I will. I will. Please take it. <laughs> and so, Kevin, to build on Bethany's wonderful analogy, I am ext- I come at privacy law and digital law more broadly from that constellation of points in the picture that represents the humans. Uh, in the picture, right? So rather than having a, a government regulatory or industry entrepreneur approach, I'm always kind of laser focused on what are the humans in the privacy picture doing or not doing? And I came to this interest by way of having been a legal aid lawyer. I founded a program at New Hampshire Legal Assistance called the Youth Law Project that still exists. And I represented kids and teens in special education and school disciplinary and related matters. And then I went on to be a consumer protection lawyer with the National Consumer Law Center in Boston. And I bring those two things forward to validate 
the trajectory that Bethany was describing, not in terms of the exact same steps. I've, I've never overseen robots, although I would love to. That seems super cool. But more to say, I think for so many of us, as we deepen our various interests in the well-being of people, institutions, and society, whether we start as a you know legal aid lawyer in family court in small town New Hampshire, right, or in, in Bethany's case or yours, Kevin, different places, those of us who are interested in providing a values-based kind of ethical and practical existence for people in the 21st century, it kind of keeps circling back to privacy. So that's how I, I came to this space. My work has been focusing specifically on what kids and teens and families do or choose not to do in their homes, schools, and other more intimate or sort of neighborhood spaces. My book, Sharonhood, which you mentioned, looks specifically at the ways in which all trusted adults in children's lives, but specifically parents, enjoy really sort of turbocharged constitutional at the federal and all state level protections around autonomy and liberty and family privacy so that you have parents in the United States in almost all states still really enjoying almost unfettered discretion to make children's digital data privacy choices. Of course, parents cannot violate civil or criminal law. You cannot, heaven forbid, film your child in a situation that constitutes abuse or neglect of the child and justify it as, oh, it's just making a privacy choice. Um, but I mentioned that only because tragically it does happen, but really within the bounds of ci civil and you know criminal law and freestanding areas like, or I shouldn't say freestanding, non-privacy areas like abuse and neglect, you can kind of choose what you want. And so I came to this space in part because I just found it very odd and very uncomfortable and very worrisome that when I became a parent, I will share it, combination of uh, sharing and parenting and say I've got two kids, almost 13 and almost nine, um, I realized, oh gosh, I could pick up my device and I could take a picture of their social security card and I could put it on Facebook and no one's going to stop me. I never did that. <laughs> I actually swung very far in the opposite direction, um, but I could. Law is not going to step in. Right. So, uh, Kevin, that is how I came uh, to my interest in digital privacy from the humans in the picture. Yeah. My baby had a blog. I went the opposite way. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Is your baby now making, you know, millions of dollars as a global influencer? I mean, so no, I, was so, I mean, when you think about some of these issues, we're going to talk about AI later. But, you know, you're putting your baby's picture online. You know, if, if you've got open AI or whoever's scraping up a bunch of data. The, the training data, you know, you could have a bunch of babies appearing remarkably like Charles Patrick Engel. Um, they, so. they would never measure up, Kevin. But yes, yeah. your broader point that, you know, you could and actually it sort of seems like from some recent reporting, we already do yeah. have generative AI being pretty invasive in this space. But I will stand down on this question until until it comes back to us. <laughs> yeah. Well, OK, so that's actually the next point that I wanted to get to, because we're going to talk about some regimes, um, some some legal regimes and other regimes in place to protect the privacy of the home. Um, but Leah, I think you bring up a good point. It's not just about the law in terms of the regimes that are in place to protect children and families and individuals in the home. Um, it, you know, if, to the extent you haven't just covered it, can you uh, talk about that a little more? Yes, I'll share that 
when I first started working on digital privacy and related aspects of cyber law with the Berkman Klein Center about 10 years ago, I was really fortunate to have mentorship and also some co-authorship with wonderful H- former HLS, now uh, uh, back in Switzerland, uh, faculty member Urs Gasser, who's worked a lot on internet governance and written a lot on it. And one of the things that Urs taught me was to think about internet governance as being multi-stakeholder and multi-dimensional. And so, Kevin, to your question, when I think about what parents or other trusted adults in a home or an intimate space for children choose to do or not do, I really see those adult choices as being part of the broader ecosystem of internet governance. It is not formal governance the same way a statute or regulation or an enforcement action is. It is not corporate governance the way policies in terms of service and and all of those choices are. But really, if we think about governance as being, broadly speaking, ways in which different stakeholders have toolkits to gatekeep or to shape the digital space, parents, as well as other trusted adults, actually are playing a huge governance role, not just in their children's privacy choices, but in terms of norms and practices and eventually sort of what we re- what we sort of view as normal or reasonable, which then does circle back around in some instances to more formal forms of governance. So that's when I think about parents, again, it's I, I think not just about quotidian tips for what to post or not post, although I do think and talk and write about that. But I really think that we humans are are playing a pretty outsized role in cyber governance right now in the form of our daily decisions. And we don't always realize that we're actually playing that kind of governance role. And of course, corporations are people too. Uh, so so that- that. <laughs> so, so Bethany, you know, from the corporate perspective, you know, whether or not there were laws, can you talk about you know some of the role the corporations themselves are playing in creating that governance structure and why they're doing it? Yeah, absolutely. So there, it's it's a great question, and and you may have to cut me off at some point because I could take up the rest of yeah. our uh, hour talking about this. But right, um, okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm just going to monologue for 40 minutes. Uh, no, so it, from a, from a corporate standpoint, there really is a fantastic business case for for privacy. If you set the the rules aside for a moment and you look at just ROI, um, in the latest Cisco uh, privacy report, they they come out with these reports every year and I shamelessly plagiarize them at work. I'm just kidding. I'm not admitting to plagiarism in front of a bunch of lawyers. Um, No, but I use them as the basis for my business cases and I have for, for years. They've been coming out since 2018. And a majority of companies are reporting um, at 1.8 times ROI or higher, up to three to five times ROI based on their you know, initial investment into their privacy programs. 94% of respondents in this latest survey, just from 2023, have stated that their customers will not buy their products if they don't have robust privacy and security protections. The flip side of that is if you look at the Panamon Institute IBM joint report on the cost of a data breach. Average costs of a data breach have have skyrocketed over this year to over four and a half billion dollars on average. The United States, for the thirteenth year in a row, has the highest data breach costs on average at nearly ten million dollars. Um, and every single continent, with the exception of Antarctica, is featured in the top fifteen countries for. 
uh, data for, for data breach costs. So you see from a corporate standpoint, just setting the laws aside, the, the fact that it, it actually is good business to invest in strong privacy programs, to invest in strong security protections. Customers want to see it. And also from the data breach perspective, the more costs that are associated with breaches, the more those costs get passed down to consumers. 57% of respondents in that Ponemon report stated this year that they're having to pass costs down to consumers after data breaches. So it's just it's just good business. So how do you communicate with consumers that, no, really, we do take your privacy seriously and we're committed to that? You mean aside from platitudes that say, we take your privacy very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you mean those don't work? Uh, actually, it's it's a really it's a really big, challenging uh, issue because people don't want to see we really value your privacy and and then have a notification that all of their data has been you know hijacked by ransomware attackers. Right? Nobody nobody wants that, um, and it's it, it really does undermine trust. So in essence, it comes down to what I like to call marketable trust. If you're going to talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. Um, from from more of a legal perspective, it's basically claims verification, right? You're making a claim, you have to validate, sorry, validation, you have to validate those claims. Um, and it, it that can be anything from, you know, talking about how you actually have structured your privacy program to having a page where you detail not, you know, vulnerabilities, but just kind of what are your security protections? You know, if you're but back when I when I worked at the MarTech startup, a really basic one was if you're building a landing page on our platform, um, it's going to be end to end encrypted. Right. The data that you transmit, your your leads come to this page. They transmit that data. It's going to be secure end to end. Right. That's a super basic one. And it's one that can be easily verified easily validated. Um, so it's really about working with your marketing and sales teams to get you to that point where you can have privacy and security as competitive differentiators. And that isn't going to be just um, a privacy issue, a security issue, a legal issue. That really is a partnership with le- with uh, marketing and sales to get that across the gate. Um, you know, you have sales that close because you know, Article 28.3 DPAs have been negotiated properly with data processors, right? So you, you're able to operate in Europe, for example, because the privacy team has ensured that you, you're compliant with GDPR. Same with California or any of these regimes. So it, it, what it what it is, is it's switching the dynamic internally from privacy is a cost center to privacy is a revenue generator. And then it's working with external comms, marketing, sales to get that message out there in a way that isn't going to hurt you in court later. Great. That's super helpful. So I want to talk about a few legal regimes now, and uh, we're going to do government and then Leo, let's do children. And then we'll kind of talk about some of the comprehensive laws. Um, but but starting with the government, so I, I kind of set the stage. We've got the Fourth Amendment, which imposes restraints on the government's ability to access um, to, you know, data and information from the home, um, certainly to enter your home. Um, but there are some important exceptions to the Fourth Amendment. And one of the ones that has been um, in the in the news a lot recently, you know, around 2018, there was a, a pretty monumental Supreme Court case, uh, the, the Carpenter case, that talked about this exception, is um, the, what's called the third party exception meaning the third party doctrine, meaning that um, a person's doesn't really have a reasonable expectation to privacy if they're sharing the information with a third party. Um, and that third party could be a phone company, and that's how the doctrine first arose, or that third party could potentially be another company. So if you've got your voice assistants in your home and you're sharing your data with that third party, 
it's possible that the Fourth Amendment won't apply in that scenario. Um, so, so Bethany, I guess how 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 do companies balance this? Because they know they're getting a lot of potentially very sensitive data. You know, what do you do if the government does ask for for, for the data from you? So, I mean, in my in my experience, it's it it's been give us a court order. Um, yeah. Right. And each company is going to handle that in a, in a different way. Right. Some companies are going to say, you know what, we're perfectly happy to work with law enforcement. Other companies are going to say we are absolutely not happy to work with law enforcement. And you're going you know, to you can pry this data out of our cold, dead hands. Um, and most companies are going to be somewhere in the, in the middle. Everybody wants to comply with the law and everybody also wants to make sure that they're not going to get attacked in the news for uh, just handing over customer data. So it really is a tricky balance. Um, personally, I, I think Carpenter was a step in the right direction, um, but it, it's hard. For, for everyone's benefit, Carpenter, so so you have the Fourth Amendment, right, which says there needs to be a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, sorry, if there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, you need a warrant to um, get access to um, the information. Carpenter was about um, GPS in your cell phone. So uh, the GPS in your cell phone, of course, is sharing that data with third parties, the phone companies and cell phone providers. So the company wanted to get that cell phone geolocation data to track Car Mr. Carpenter in, in that case to find you know, if they were in the vicinity of the crime. Um, and what the Supreme Court ultimately did was they said, well, that data, even though it's being shared with a third party, it's so sensitive because it could it could tell us, you know, are you going to church? Are you, you know, in the hospital? That, that kind of data is so sensitive that we're going to impose um, additional protections on that kind of data. So, so that's what Carpenter is about. It took the third party doctrine and it pulled it back a little bit, but on its facts, it just applies to cell phone geolocation data. It doesn't necessarily apply to your, your voice assistance data in your home. So uh, just to put that in context, but Bethany. Yeah, sense. that was really, really helpful context and, and great summary. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I do believe it's a step in the right direction. I, believe like with most areas of law that relates to technology, the law is several steps behind the technology. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think you, you can do even just look at that Cisco report that I referenced. Consumers expect privacy. Now, whether it's a reasonable expectation of privacy is I suppose what the courts have to determine, but when your entire life is on your cell phone, your, your banking, your social media, your kids' pictures, your kids' schedules, everything, everything revolves around this, you know, little device. Um, I, I don't, I don't really see how there is not a reasonable expectation of privacy there. And I, and, and I think that it's getting to be increasingly um, precarious here and, and, and challenging because I, I think in some areas, like let's look at health data apps, for example, you have menstrual tracking apps, fertility tracking apps, all of these health apps. And unless it is specifically a telehealth company, those apps are not HIPAA covered entities for the most part. Um, and so in the light of the Dobbs decision, if yeah. there's not a reasonable expectation of privacy on your device or with these apps, that opens some very scary doors. Um, and, and so I, I don't believe Carpenter went far enough, but I do believe it is a step in the right direction. Yeah. And if you're thinking about the home, I mean, you already set the picture about the smart home. You know, the smart home could maybe tell, are you there or not? Which law enforcement would be quite. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's the thing with these smart home devices is that, you know, we, we, you know, there's all these articles about how smart TVs are essentially a cesspool. I mean, full of malware, terrible for security. Um, yeah. 
But if you have that and you have, you know, we all have, have these smart TVs that are hooked into our, our Wi-Fi. Um, you know, I, I'm a bad privacy professional. I have a Samsung phone, um, which are not the best for security. Um, right. So we're all, we are all making choices based on what is good for us at the time that we're making these decisions. And it has an impact into our homes because these companies are literally looking in and they may, you know, it may be a series of data points, but like I said before, it creates the picture. And if the government by proxy has the ability to look in, uh, you know, I don't, I, I think it is a big fourth amendment issue. Yeah. Well, and to be clear though, I mean, most of these companies, they're not assembling your George Saha painting to try to, you know, put you in particular locations. They're using that data for particular purposes. It seems like right. a lot of the risk would be if you were the government and you actually are, you know, somebody coming in from the outside trying to, to put that together. Exactly. And I think the, the, the point that I'm making is that there is the potential to put that painting yeah. together. And that even if you are not, even if the data you're not sharing, even if the data you're sharing is not directly identifiable, even if it is a series of indirect data points like IP addresses, MAC addresses, um, you know, Wi-Fi password, all of these various things, you know, you, there was a study that came out or an article, sorry, it was an article that came out a few years ago. I think it was in the New York times that basically said you only need four pieces of not directly identifiable data to re-identify an individual. And I mean, all of these smart devices have way more than that. So yes, in terms of our like physical risk, probably not hugely risky. Like you said, they're not looking to know us as people. They're looking to sell us things, right? Their interest in us is as a series of data points. Um, but we do need to be aware of the potential slippery slope. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Leah, let's talk about kids. Um, so kids are in the home. <laughs> kids have privacy too. Um, so just again, to, there are a number of laws in the United States and internationally that are specific to kids. In the United States here, we, of course, have COPPA, which has been around for a long time, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, um, that requires uh, notices and parental consent uh, for children under the age of, of 13. Um, we have, at least for the moment, well, we have the California Age Appropriate Design Code, uh, which, right, we, we were... It was it was recently enjoined by a California court. There's a whole bunch of First Amendment issues there that we might talk about at the end if we have time. Um, but it, it's it's a new law that's sort of going beyond um, COPPA in terms of um, some of the requirements about ensuring that your your product is designed with children in mind. Um, one interesting feature of that one, though, uh, just to start this discussion about children. So we have all these laws that apply to children. COPPA applies to children under the age of 13. Uh, the California age or the California Consumer Privacy Act, the comprehensive law in California, can go up to the age of 16. And then the California Age Appropriate Design Code actually can apply to kids under the age of 18. So, so my question for you is, how do I know this is a kid? Because, you know, and I, I will admit, we full disclosure, I am ripping off someone else's talking points here. But, you know, a 13-year-old, under 13, kids have some particular interests. So it's kind of easier to tell if if the website is directed to children. 18-year-olds have a lot of the same interests that I do. You know, they could be looking up Civil War history or something bizarre like that. Maybe that's a nerdy kid, but it's cer certainly it's it's a lot harder to tell. So, so how do you do how do you do that? So I will uh delighted to answer, and I'll also bring in the great question that someone posted in the QA tool about social media liability for letting kids under 13 on their platforms. So, Kevin, to your wonderful question of how do you tell? If the if the user is uh, a kid, 
And I apologize for the barking dog in the background. They may be thinking about that very old New Yorker cartoon from the early internet ages, right? On where you have like a dog using the computer and pretending not to be a dog. Anyway, but that's actually a dog. So the answer is, it's actually not that easy to tell if a user um, is a kid or an adolescent or an adult, or in this case, maybe a, a dog. And one of the things that is going to remain challenging for privacy by design type of either legislation or um, company policies is, and this goes to your point earlier, Bethany, about sometimes sort of needing more data to try to assure privacy or privacy compliance, but then you're actually acquiring more data, that it does not appear that to date, we have an absolutely fail-safe tech toolkit for doing age verification in an accurate, unbiased, privacy-protecting way across the board. That's not to chill enthusiasm for continuing to come up with ever better toolkits to accomplish age verification in a unbiased, privacy-protecting, effective way, but just to say that that is still a work in progress. So to the question about can a social media company be sued, be held liable under COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, for letting a user under 13 on, the answer is it's a lot harder than you might think it is given the title of that law. So COPPA applies to for-profit businesses, which social media companies typically are, that are taking personal information or PI from a user under 13. That company has to either be targeting or knowingly have users under 13. And some companies really try to hide behind the targeted or knowing use. Like, oh, we're not going after them. We didn't know they were there. Um, or the company can avoid liability by getting parental consent. And I think that's often overlooked with COPPA that parental consent actually is a justifiable way under the law to welcome a user under 13 to this type of service or tool and acquire their personal information. And unfortunately, we parents are not always the best gatekeepers um, for this because you know, it is very, very challenging, even for, you know, self-proclaimed privacy nerds, when you are trying to make a decision in your personal capacity, right? If I'm researching or if I'm making a decision as an administrator, sure, I'll read every single word. I will mark it up. I will ask questions. If I'm in my home and dinner's boiling over and my dog is barking and one or more kids is sort of like tugging at me and wanting me to do something with a device, I will confess, maybe I shouldn't, but I will, that I have been known to be like, all right, fine. <laughs> right. Um, and so I think, unfortunately, COPPA really doesn't provide the kind of protection that you would think it would given its title. And I'll add one last thing. COPPA is silent on what parents choose to share in terms of personal information. So COPPA will not stop me at all if I open up my phone during that kind of hectic dinner hour where dinner's boiling over, the dog's barking, one or both kids want something, and I go on Facebook and say, oh my goodness, <laughs> I'm totally overloaded, kids are being crazy, dog is too loud, here's a picture, here's a video, like hashtag stressed out, right? 
well, I just revealed a lot of personal information about my child and my home in the content of my post. And also, and Bethany, you're more expert here than I am, but I'll paint with a broad brush that artist metaphor and say, I am also inevitably revealing information that I don't even fully realize that I am revealing, right? In terms of geolocation, other use patterns, to your point about smart devices, right? Maybe Alexa hears me raise my voice and all of a sudden kind of kicks into gear. So um, COPPA does sound great. <laughs> Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, it's got a lot of holes. And, and that's one of the interesting things that the California Age Appropriate Design Code was trying to maybe address, which was, it's not just about consent, it's also about assessing risks in the unique context of, of children. On the flip side, and I don't want to go on too big a tangent, it was recently struck down, uh, or it, it was it was preliminarily enjoined, I should say, by by a district court in California. And the basis for doing that, among many others, was, was free speech, uh, that the statute was imposing burdens on companies' abilities to speak. And one of the issues that they were highlighting was the, the first one that we were talking about, which was it's really hard to tell how old kids are. And that imposes a, a pretty significant burden on companies and potentially, you know, um, inhibits their speech. And, and one of the points that they were making was because it's so hard, often companies will need to basically apply the standards that would be for kids to the general public because you just can't tell. So lots of, lots of fascinating issues to go into there. Um, Bethany, let me, let me ask you, so, so consent. So we were just talking about consent. You know, what are what are ways, particularly if you've got a device, be that a Roomba or you know a device, a toy or something you're putting into your home? What are some ways that companies try? What are some methods companies use to try to obtain consent in that context? And do you think it works? Yep. So that's a that's a great question. So consent is a multifaceted thing, right? So you can in the United States when you uh, are when you get when you sign into your smart home device for the first time and it has you agree to the terms of service and privacy policy from an American viewpoint, you know, we view that as, as consent that doesn't fly in GDPR countries. Um, that's not consent. The privacy policy isn't the privacy policy. It's the privacy notice and consent is for specific purposes of processing. So I actually, in, in my experience working at various companies, I tend to take a GDPR approach to consent management. Where does consent make the most sense? Where can we provide opportunities for informed consent? If it is not truly informed consent, it is not consent, is how I approach it. And so, you know, in... In, in the privacy space, there are privacy information management systems. One of the more recent ones is ISO 27701, which builds upon the ISO 27001 security standard. And it maps to GDPR, but it is a series of privacy principles, and it is about data subject rights. So consent and choice is, is one of them. Transparency is another one. And transparency and consent go hand in hand, in my view. Because you can't have informed, you can't have consent if it's uninformed consent. Your consent, your consent cannot be informed if you, as the company, have not been transparent about what data you're collecting, why, who it's going to be shared with, how it's going to be used, for how long it's going to be retained, how it's going to be secured. It can be very difficult to put that all into one little paragraph of text at the time of data collection. But 
that goes back to my earlier point about working really closely with your marketing and sales teams and corporate comms, right? Because your privacy notices themselves, those long privacy policies, those ideally are not supposed to be in, in legalese and be 47 pages long either. They're supposed to be plain language and informative because people are, we want people to read them. We want people to understand what we're doing. So if you can take that approach of transparency and uh, informed consent and apply it across the board, you actually have a really great organizational development tool at your disposal because you have this chance to reduce siloing. You have this chance for privacy and legal and security teams to not be seen as obstacles. You are there to not just fulfill these legal and compliance and consent obligations, but to do so in a way that's consumer forward. Uh, so that that's kind of my overarching philosophical approach and how when I work with different companies, whether as an employee or as a consultant, um, looking at that consent piece, where is consent necessary? Where does it make sense? How can we be the most transparent? And Leah, let me just raise another challenge with consent and COPPA and all these different statutes. Um, so there was this famous case. I, I forget what the toy was, but it's one of these toys that you could interact with and it would listen. And so one of the issues that was raised in that context was kids don't play by themselves. Um, so how is it even possible to get consent from all the people who might be interacting, all the parents or, all, you know, whomever might be interacting with the toy or device? I think, Kevin, unfortunately, it realistically is seldom possible to get consent from the parent or guardian of every child who may be interacting with a toy or a device especially as the toys and devices grow ever more prolific and sophisticated. I think there we have to look not toward the notice and consent framework, although that remains, of course, incredibly important, but we have to look either at um, government regulation or I think more realistically right now, corporate self-regulation around even though I have this data from this category of user, like I can choose, or if there is better government regulation, be told not to use it for certain things. And I do think that the insight that kids seldom play alone, kids also based development obviously varies. And I, you know, certainly not a, a child psychologist, but just you know, speaking commonsensically. Um, kids are not just small adults, they are developing humans and the ways in which they might talk to a toy, whether they are by themselves or with peers, um, can really be quite different and more intimate and more revealing. One of the issues also that then comes up with kids in particular is that states typically have mandatory reporting laws for suspected child abuse and neglect. And so if you are a manufacturer of a smart toy or other type of smart device and you are getting information from a child that would trigger mandatory reporting obligations. I mean, so sad to think about, but you know, child is telling a, a smart teddy bear about what's going on in their life, then you know what? You're certainly not going to get out of those reporting obligations by sort of, you know, claiming or 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 feigning ignorance. So you can break yourself into jail, metaphorically speaking, a little bit there as a, a smart device provider. Um, we're being asked if a service can require a credit card to verify age. So if the question is under COPPA, can you require, you know, different types of, you know, 
credit card, fax, email, phone call. Um, COPPA was was written in the internet age, but earlier in the internet age, it does list a variety of things that a service provider who's a, a covered entity under COPPA can do to get parental consent. And in terms of whether a credit card specifically can be used to verify the age of a user outside of the COPPA framework, I think, and Kevin and Bethany jump in if, if you think differently, I think that is going to remain a somewhat open question as the different state law frameworks around age verification unfold. Seems to me one of the more reasonable ways of potentially doing age verification. On the other hand, it is certainly possible for um, a minor to get their hands on an adult credit card. Um, so, you know, I, I will pause there and just and, and ask, you know, Bethany or Kevin, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, there, I mean, again, verifying age is is, is quite a challenge. So one, there, there's two different questions. So under COPPA, you come into scope either if you know you're getting children's data. And most companies, as Leah has said, say, well, we don't know. You throw up your hands. <laughs> it's like, really? You don't know? Um, none of my, none of my clients, of course, but, but other companies, um, um, but, but then too, if you're, if your website or, or, or online system is directed to children. And so that's where like, you know, if you've got cartoons or something, that's a good indication that it's directed to children in terms of actually verifying age, that can be a challenge. And, and, and their regulations do give some examples. If you're thinking about it, you know, a lot of companies will say, are you over 13? Okay. Every kid knows the answer is Yes, right. So, so, so the regulators said, "Well, that's okay. That might not be that. That might be enough in some circumstances, but we might not give you a total pass there. Uh, you should, you should probably ask them, how old are you?'" And then, you know, kids are kind of stupid. So maybe they'll say, "Oh, I'm 12. Um, uh, but, but that, that's you know, that, that's maybe a little bit more stronger. And so, there's, there's different ways you can go about it. And I, I think um, there's, there's different regulators would, would view, view those verification methods. You know, with more or less rigor. So, um, I want to I want to pivot quickly to some general. We've been talking about kids. We've been talking about the government. We now have comprehensive privacy laws as well. And obviously, we don't have time to go into everything that's there. I, um, but the comprehensive privacy laws, among other things, required notice. They give people rights. Some particular aspects of them that I thought were important to the home were they have uh, requirements around sensitive data. Um, so in some cases, you have to retain opt-in consent before collecting sensitive data, which, you know, you might get more of that in the context of the home. Um, and they do also have requirements about kids. And then they've got requirements about privacy impact assessments. And I want, but I want to actually ask a general question, which is all of this is goes back to consumer control. And so, you know, what are some ways, big picture, that you think companies that are putting devices in the home can give consumers more control over their data. Bethany, why don't we, why don't I start with you? Sure. So um, taking a privacy by design approach to the product development process is critical in, in, in this, right? Involve privacy teams at the outset, security teams at the outset, legal teams at the outset, so that when you are developing a smart home product, um, you have an understanding of what you actually need from a data perspective. We're long past the days of, well, I just want to collect everything just in case. That doesn't fly anymore in light of these comprehensive privacy laws. And also, it's it's not a good practice um, 
it you know it leads to increased data storage costs, data processing costs. So it's not good for business to indiscriminately collect data, and it's not good for for privacy. So uh, product teams need to be taking a privacy by design approach and running data minimization exercise. Determine what data you need, why, and why you need it, and then be transparent with consumers about what you're collecting and why. Even when consent is not the appropriate lawful basis of data processing, you still need to be transparent with consumers about what you're collecting and the benefits that they derive from that collection. And if there aren't any, if you're collecting it because you have to collect it, you're collecting credit card information because you need to bill them for use of your product, that's fine too. You can still say, hey, we're collecting this information, but we're not actually going to store it. You know, it, it, we're going to purge it right after this goes, or whatever. You can still be transparent about the data protection aspect. So ultimately, it, it comes down to corporate processes, privacy by design, transparency, data minimization. Um, Leah, I'm not sure if you have anything to add there. The only thing I would add, and this is my my human in the dots here, is um, strong encouragement for that privacy by design to have very strong privacy protecting default settings. I think that the um, the approach of having you know privacy control centers or user options, there's a lot there that's great in terms of giving choice, but also it's hard for parents in particular, but also I would say sort of all humans um, to have the time and in some instances, the resources to navigate that. And so recognizing that um, what default settings are uh, can make a really big difference. Great. So I uh, have a few more questions. I do want to encourage you, though, if you do have um, questions, to put them in the Q&A at the bottom. Um, hopefully, we'll have some time at the end to answer them if we haven't gotten to them already. Um, so, 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 Bethany, um, I think my last question, depending on time here, is about inadvertent collection. You mentioned at the beginning that I think you are privacy officer and record retention officer. Did I have? Do I have that right? So, yeah. Companies that are interacting in the home are inevitably going to get stuff they don't want. What What do you right. do about that? Yeah, that's it's it's a really great question, um, and and so it's there's a lot that actually goes into that. Um, so part of it is going to be essentially covering your asses about it. You know, it, you know, putting into your privacy notices uh, what may be collected, and also at the time of collection, saying, "Hey, you know, there there is the possibility that." you know, A, B, and C could be collected. So if you don't want that, you know, get your, you know, get, get your tax documents out of view if you don't want your social security number collected as part of this smart home device. So there is that element of consumer activity and making those choices in your own home about what you, what data you actually expose to these companies. From the company perspective, um, there is that aspect of, all right, well, okay, we have the data now. So what retention period do we put in place? Uh, how do we make sure that our data mapping is up to date, our data inventory is up to date? So if, you know, if we have a living data inventory and that, you know, that can involve it, uh, it, having vendors that provide automated data inventory and data mapping so that you're not having to go through this manually and risk having data that you don't want. You know, if you have your up-to-date living data inventory data flow diagrams, you can say, hey, wait a minute, this we don't we don't need a whole collection of consumer SSNs or health data or whatever. Um, 
let's let's set this to automatically delete after 30 days. Or if you know that you are typically getting uh, particular pieces of sensitive data into the into you know one specific data flow, you can segment segment that within your architecture and set up automatic retention. If you can't get the data to not be collected, because you never sometimes sometimes you can't. Um, it, you know, given what people do in their homes, you know, you just don't know. There's there's always that element of kind of human um, chaos for lack of a better term there. And that, that you as the company, as the business have to acknowledge, okay, that risk is there. Now, what do we do to mitigate it from a data retention, data deletion, data security perspective? Great. So there's one question in the chat about data breaches that I will answer. But first, um, I wanted to ask both of you, maybe starting Leah with you, what should we do now? What do you think? You know, we talked about a lot of risks. What should you know, we, you can answer this however you want, but businesses, the government, lawmakers, what do you think they should do to to address some of those risks? I think to address some of these risks, it we need more by way of trusted public education campaigns that give the human gatekeepers, notably parents, but also other um, individuals in the home, access to information that they can use in very actionable and concrete ways. Bethany, I think your example is great of if you don't want the device or the network to pick up your social security number, don't show it your tax documents. And I think that there is an often over overlooked part of, of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, right, which actually says with respect specifically to um, parent tools that there are supposed to be parent tools made available um, to users. And I don't bring this up to say that I think um, it is a basis for, for 230 litigation. We have enough of that. But just to say, I think it has been something that the government and other stakeholders have been aware of for a long time. And I think that there are many different stakeholders across sectors, government, private, academia, civil society groups, and so on, that are working on this. But I think we need more for the humans that is actionable and user-friendly. And uh, Bethany, same question to you. Well, I love Leah's answer, and I would actually just add to that, that we need more education for the regulators themselves. I mean, uh, you, you probably watched the Facebook hearings um, or the, and the TikTok hearings. I mean, we the people who are making the regulations don't understand how the technology works. And oh, my God, that is so scary and frustrating. Um, so we what we need I, I think is we we almost need maybe even I don't know if this is too far, but maybe even another agency that's just like the technology education agency, something like that. The T, the T, the T, technology education agency. We can spill the T on uh, on 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 what's going on in the technology world um, because how can they be expected to be at the cusp of regulation and create regulation that actually is in line with the technology and not 17 steps behind or completely nonsensical in context if they don't actually understand how the basics of online advertising works or or, or any of this smart home technology. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, we've made history here today. We've created a new federal agency, which I'm excited <laughs> to announce. Um, <laughs> one, with the, the one with a good acronym, actually. With a good acronym, <laughs> yeah. 
uh, and it doesn't begin with C. There's too many like California this and that, the other things right now. Um, all right, so there's one question in the chat uh, that I want to. It's about data breaches, and uh, Bethany, I'd appreciate you know if you have any other thoughts. But so the question was, if there's a data breach after notifying users and offering credit monitoring services, what else is needed? So, so there are legal requirements about what you need to do. And I, I should add, I, I do cybersecurity incident response in addition to privacy work. So there's a number of legal requirements that can get tripped if um, personal information was accessed here in the United States. Personal information is fairly narrowly de defined in the context of data breach statutes. So it's usually first name, last name, and something like a social security number, driver's license number, health information, biometric information. Um, in Europe, the definition is broader. But so so in terms of your legal requirements, you have to notify individuals. Um, in some cases, you have to notify regulators. In some cases, you have to offer credit monitoring, as the, the question says. But I, I think if you're really thinking through a data breach properly, you've got to think beyond just the legal requirements. Because, you know, to what Bethany was talking about earlier, a data breach is another opportunity to build trust uh, with your consumers. Um, so if all you do is the bare minimum and people don't feel like you're respecting their privacy, uh, you know, that that maybe is not going to help you as a company. If you think through the public statements that you're making so that you are, are you know, come across as fully disclosure while still protecting the company's, uh, you know, legal risks, because the other piece here is that there's an active plaintiff's class action bar looking for data breaches to sue you about. So you need to be cognizant of, of the risks in coming forward with announcements, but but really trying to take it as another opportunity to build trust with um, your consumers and others whose information may have been accessed. Um, Bethany, I'm not sure if you have anything else to add there. I mean, you, you pretty much nailed it. The the yeah. great answer. The only thing that I would add is is just that from an incident response perspective, um, the postmortem is re is really really important. Um, get get your stakeholders together after the incident response um, process has been has been met and figure out what went wrong, what could what you could do better. Um, and just from a process standpoint, in terms of managing the incident itself, um, I always find those to be really helpful. All right. And then we have one more question. I think we have one minute to do. So Leah, do you want to take, uh, is anyone trying to work on these matters with public or private organizations? What can we do to advocate? Yes, great question. Many people are. I think that some organizations if you're focusing on sort of kids and families in particular, I would take a look at the future of Privacy Forum or FPF. I think they're doing some great work. Center for Democracy and Technology put in a plug for the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. And above all, I would put in a plug for finding out what is happening at the local level where you are. See what is happening in your child's school. If you don't have a child in school, find out what's happening in your school district, because that can make such a big difference for the ways in which privacy is protected in school settings and also taught about. Great. Well, thank you again. Thank you to Bethany and to Leah, and thank you to the BBA, and thank you to everyone for joining. I uh, appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. It's been a great time. Thank you so much.